between Russia and the United States, uh, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev had a reception at the Polish embassy with a group of Western leaders. His words almost sparked World War III. He was heard saying, whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. The next day, Khrushchev's words were plastered on newspapers all around the world, specifically sparking outrage in America, as many felt like it was an invitation to war. Sadly, it was not actually what Khrushchev was trying to say. It was mistranslated. He was hoping to say, whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will outlast you. He was trying to show that communism will outlast capitalism and will win in the end. We will bury you or we will outlast you has a different emotional response to each phrase. That mistranslation heightened the tension between Russia and the United States and really created tension all over America among the American people. Language is very important. Saying the right word at the right time can calm people or anger them. You know, I've had the opportunity to speak through translators, and not every translator has the same skill. Some have more, pre- have more precise translation, while others take more liberty with your words. When preaching the Word of God, a good translator is very important for understanding the text. For misunderstanding, it could be devastating. Now, it's understandable to, to have things get lost in translation. I was recently trying to message a group of Colombian pastors, trying to encourage them in the partnership of the gospel. I tried to write them in Spanish, uh, saying, congratulations on your Independence Day. You are loved from the United States. That was my intent, what I wanted to write, but what I actually said was, congratulations on your Independence Day, your master from the United States. When trying to celebrate one's independence, it's not good to call yourself their master. (laughs) Thankfully, someone corrected me, and we all had a good laugh at my expense. I mean, have you ever had your words misunderstood, maybe taken out of context or misinterpreted? You try to say one thing, but someone heard something else. There may be common to misunderstandings across languages, but it happens all the time, even in our own language. I have been misheard or misunderstood as a preacher. I remember my first year here, I I was preaching a sermon on a Sunday evening, and the tone in which I was speaking and and uh, and the the phrasing of certain things I said caused some in the congregation to be uh, unsettled and unnerved by by what I said. I had to go back and listen to my sermon, and I could see how they heard me in the way that they, they did. If you're going to communicate, you will inevitably be misheard or misunderstood. The Apostle Paul was worried about being misunderstood by the Romans after showing how God shows no partiality. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, is one section. It's where Paul is unpacking how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He shows how Gentiles without the law and Jews who are under the law, will both be judged for their unrighteousness. Both Jews and Gentiles will be judged for God shows no partiality, Romans 2.11. Paul was quite confident someone was going to raise objections on his teaching on circumcision. 
The Jews were, were given circumcision as a visible sign to be marked as God's people. Uh, it was given to Abraham in Genesis 17 to mark them as a distinct people. Uh, even Moses was almost killed because he did not sacrifice his sons. Uh, every foreigner who wanted to, to become one of God's people had to go through the, the physical act of circumcision. All that to say is circumcision was a big deal for the Jewish people. So look back with me for context. Romans chapter 2 25 through 29. Paul helps to reinterpret what the true meaning of circumcision is. He writes, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and, and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision was never meant to be merely external and outward, the outward sign was meant to communicate an inward reality. A true Jew is not one who goes through the merely the physical act of circumcision, but one who believes God from the heart. Because we even know in, in a few chapters, Paul is going to teach this very thing in Romans chapter 4, that, that the promise came before circumcision, before the, the law. So God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15, and he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness before he gave circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. So Paul finishes his brief teaching on circumcision and knows that some will object or misunderstand what he has said. Uh, we may not know, uh, he may not know how they'll misunderstand, but he may actually know because some have already misunderstood what he has taught and have slandered him because we see that in verse 8. Words matter. Paul did not want to be understood. So in Romans chapter 3, uh, 1 through 8, what we see here is a mini Q&A session with the Apostle Paul. Uh, he raises four objections and then answers them one by one. Uh, in my study this week, I was encouraged because um, John Piper quoted that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor who preached on Romans for, for 15 years, said Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is the hardest chapter section in the book of Romans. And then he said, it might be even the hardest chapter in the entire Bible. I say that to say, lower your expectations for this sermon. <laughs> we have four objections here. The first objection, what does it matter to be God's people? What does it matter to be God's people? The first objection raised is, is on the importance of the purpose of being God's people. If, if both Jew and Gentile are judged, what does it matter to be one of the people of God? Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? So if God gave circumcision as a sign of God's special relationship with Israel, but circumcision is not outward and physical, but inward and spiritual, and if God will judge the Jews who are under the law, as he will judge the, the Gentiles who, are, who don't have the law, then what does it even matter if one is a Jew? Remember, the, the Jews grip their identity as God's people, as a new driver kind of grips the steering wheel. 
that they put so much stock in their unique place in the world as the Lord's people. And it seems Paul is shaking the etch-a-sketch of their identity. So Paul raises the question, what is the value of being God's people? And we see his reply in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now he begins this sentence as, as, as if he was going on to a long list, much in every way, to begin with or first, but then he only gives one reason here. The Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Uh, many scholars believe in Romans 3, 1 through 8, as really a foreshadowing of Paul's future teaching in uh, of the, of how God is going to save the Jews and give them salvation in Romans chapter 9 through 11. In that section in, in, of uh, Romans chapter 9, he offers a, a longer list of what God gave the Jews. So just maybe hold your place here and, and turn a few pa- pa- uh, pages over to Romans chapter 9. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is where Paul is kind of communicating his deep desire for the Jews to be saved. In verses 4 and 5 we read, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the, to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Uh, Paul could give lots of benefits of being God's people. And we see that he does that in chapter 9. But going back to chapter 3, he only gives one. The Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews have been given God's word. It's a unique and special blessing to to be given the very words of God. Uh, Paul uses this unique description as the oracles of God rather than saying the word of God or the, the word of the Lord because God gave specific words to the Jewish people for specific acts of deliverance, specific acts of salvation. If you go back and read the, the prophets, you'll often hear that, an oracle of the Lord, uh, an oracle of Habakkuk even. Uh, we see that in the prophets. They were entrusted with God's promises of how they, God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, were going to be saved. They held a privileged place in God's salvation history because he gave them promises for salvation. Uh, beloved, the, the Apostle Paul also wrote to the Thessalonians, saying of Christians that we have been entrusted with the gospel. We have been given the very word of God. Do, do you look at the blessing it is to have the word of God? You know, to have someone stand in this pulpit week after week, unpacking the word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, month after month, year after year. Uh, The Word of God is open and planted on the hearts of God's people. This is not meant to to boast in any one individual like myself who has has, has the opportunity to preach here most often, but this is the the, the blessing that God has given our church with so many men to stand and declare God's Word uh, to you. Beloved, never take for granted the Word of God. We hear this Word every week, and sometimes we forget the blessing it is to have this being expounded in our congregation. You know, there are churches throughout the world who do not regularly have the gift of someone teaching them God's word. They may have someone teach the implications of the word or, um, or, or the themes of the scriptures, but may not, may not have someone systematically unpack the truth from the text week in and week out. Beloved, we are not a perfect church. 
I do not want us to take any form of pride in our doctrine or how our church is structured or, or what we do here and how it's different from other places and other churches. Everything we have, we have received from God, so let's not act as if we received it. We go by grace. But that does not mean that we cannot be extremely thankful that in this church, at this pulpit, we have been given the Word of God and we've been given teachers to help us understand the Word. You know, as we enter in this season of Thanksgiving, I think it would be beneficial for us to appreciate all that the Lord has done and is doing in our fellowship. And we can easily point out our deficiencies in the areas of our church that need growth. I see, I see many of them. We have all areas that we want to improve and change in this church and maybe even in our own lives. But should that, that should not discourage us from thanking God that here we strive to hold fast to the Word of God because He has given us His Word. And we can say, praise His name. The second objection we see here in the text is Paul saying, was God faithful to His Word? So the first one maybe questions, what does it mean to be the people of God? Here, it's questioning the Word of God. Was God faithful to His Word? You know, Paul does not share every blessing of being God's people in this text, but we, we start to see his logic in speaking about the oracles of God or the specific words given to Israel about their future salvation. Look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faith fullness of God. Paul is thinking, someone's going to question, this thought's going to be raised in their minds, is that if the Jews were judged when they were unfaithful, as we see in, in, in um, uh, Romans chapter 2, 17 through 24, well, then God's faithfulness is in question. If God promised to save the Jews through specific oracles, then how is God faithful if he judges those same Jews. Didn't he promise to save them? If he promises to save them, but instead judges them, how could we call God faithful? Again, Paul picks up this same theme in Romans chapter 9 when he writes in Romans 9, 6. But it is, as though the word, it is not as though the word of God has failed. He writes that in Romans 9. He writes that here is because people are thinking the word of God has failed. Because God has promised to save and they have not been saved, but they have been judged. Paul will show how God is always faithful to his word, even if it's in judgment. God's word is always true. So in Romans chapter 2, Paul shows how many Jews were unfaithful to the covenant responsibilities of being God's people. They were condemning others while practicing the very same things themselves. They were self-righteous, trusting in, in their identity as God's people without living like God's people. You know, even someone today asked me, what do you do with someone who claims the name of Christ and yet lives differently? That's a, that's a thought that we should probably often think about, even now as we go uh, to Thanksgiving meals and, and Christmas meals, we're around family, people that we love, people that we care about, who they, they, they would say that they live for, that they, they're followers of Jesus, that they, they, they're saved, they believe that Jesus Christ died for them and was raised from the dead, but their life bears no fruit. This is what's happening here. It's that these people of God were claiming the identity of God's people. We are, we are Jews, we are, we are of the people of God, and yet they weren't living like it. So Paul asked the question, 
Does their faithlessness nullify or erase the faithfulness of God? And he answers in Romans 3, 4, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The, the answer in, in, is emphatic in the Greek. It says, by no means. It really couldn't be any stronger. Of course, their faithlessness cannot erase the faithfulness of God. God is true even though everyone is a liar. God is always faithful to his word. And specifically, God is faithful to his word even in judgment. That was which, what people would be questioning in him. We, we see he quotes David in Psalm 51. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and got her pregnant and then had Uriah killed in battle. Nathan, the prophet, confronts David and, and David, grieved over his sin, has this heartfelt confession before the Lord, testifying that God was right to judge him. Isaiah 51, you've already heard it read. Let me read first, the first four verses again. God's word says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And this is what he quoted. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David, the man after God's own heart, grievously sinned against God, and therefore God is right to judge him. God is always faithful to his word. David was saying his sin is ultimately against God, and therefore God's justice was established against him and against his sin. God's opinion is the only one that matters. Many in our day try to judge God on the fairness in how he deals with sin, they do not, do not believe it is fair for God to condemn people to an eternal hell for rejecting him. They do not believe it is fair for God to condemn people when, when they want to live the way they want to live for themselves. They say people should be free to live any way they, they want. Beloved, it does not matter what the culture says. It does not matter even what you think your opinion is. The only opinion that matters is what God says. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, it says, God shows no partiality. He will judge the Gentiles without the law and the Jews who are under the law. Everyone of God's judgments are right. If you're visiting today and have not trusted in, in Jesus Christ, first let me just say thank you for coming. Uh, it's always uh, maybe nerve-wracking coming to a place that you may not agree with everything that is said. Let me just ask you, have you ever considered what you deserve for your sin? Have you ever considered what will happen to you because of your sin? Would God be right to judge you? Does he have the right to administer justice on you who may violate his law? As Christians, we believe we have sinned and rebelled against a holy God. We believe we rightly deserve to be judged for our sin. 
We know we have done wrong, and God is right and good to condemn us. If you think that maybe Christians think that themselves is better than other people, please, that is not what Christians think. Christians actually know how sinful we really are. We, we know that we deserve to be punished for what we have done. And yet, it is because we believe that, we ask God to forgive us. We, as, we say what David wrote in, in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. We do not deserve mercy, but in love, God offers it. He offers us through his Son. Jesus Christ took God's justice on our behalf. He never sinned, never disobeyed God, always lived in accordance with the truth. And he willingly laid down his life and died on the cross. He died to pay the judgment deserved for sinners. He took God's wrath on the cross. He was dead and buried, but God raised him from the dead. The cross and the resurrection is the only way for you to be forgiven of your sins. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. He's the one who gives us what we do not deserve because he took what we deserved for our sin on the cross. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you too will be forgiven. Your faithlessness does not have to nullify the faithfulness of God. God is mighty to save and delights to save. Turn to him in faith and experience the mercy of, of God. You know, beloved, it's, I think it's important for us to remember that even though we sometimes are faithless, God always remains faithful to us. Now, God is true to his word to judge, but God is true to his word to save. Paul's words to Timothy are helpful here in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you have maybe your Bibles, maybe just turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 2, just a few pages over. It'll be on the screen, Lord willing, but... It's good to, to see it with your own eyes. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 8 and following. You see something similar here. We read in God's word, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. For though I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. Focus in here. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Christians, I do not know what sins you are weighed down with this morning, but you need to hear that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation, you are adopted into the family of God, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. You will have moments of faithlessness, but God will remain faithful to you. We all have those moments when we don't do as we ought but if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are one with him, and he cannot deny himself. He will be true to you forever. His steadfast love never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. This is why we sing, great is his faithfulness, because his mercies are new every morning. I think about that sometimes. 
You know, God could have created the world to look so many different ways, and yet he created the world in a way where the sun rises every day. Why? It's to remind you and me who sometimes have weak faith that his mercies and his light are new to us yet again. Great is his faithfulness to you. So this morning, if you are in Christ, rejoice anew, afresh in the mercy of God. God will be true to his word to judge and to save. We need to hear both messages. If you are in sin this morning, repent and believe. If you are struggling with sin, repent and believe and remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David, risen from the dead. If you, by God's grace, are overcoming sin in your life, rejoice and believe in the steadfast love and mercy of God. Well, those are the first two objections. The third objection and the fourth are really very similar with a slight nuance. The third objection, does the gospel of grace erase the righteousness of God? Does the gospel of grace erase the righteousness of God? Paul continues answering the objections that come from the wrath of God against sin and sinners. Remember, Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.20 is one section where Paul is teaching on the, the wrath of God. He poses another two questions and then answers the question with the question. Look at verse 5, Romans 3. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Some may say that since my unrighteousness displays the righteousness of God, then it would be unfair for God to inflict his wrath on us. What they're saying is that if someone's sin makes God's righteousness more noticeable, then it's unfair for God to judge that person of that sin. It's as if like the blackness or the darkness of our sin causes the brightness of the gospel diamond to shine uh, more clearly. Well, then we should not be judged if our sin displays the righteousness of God. Then he says, I speak in a human way. He adds that line because that is utterly illogical. He answers the question with a question. Look at verse 6. Again, by no means. Now, when you see that, that by no means, he says it several times in Romans with an exclamation part, you just know it's kind of like he's kind of raising his voice a little bit, right? He's, he's saying it with a lot of passion here. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? See, Jews would have no problem with the idea that God would judge the, the Gentile world because of their sin. This is Romans uh, 1, uh, 28 through 32. All that list of sins that we, that we mentioned a few weeks back. Paul says that it, it's, a, it's a absurd logic in regards, regarding themselves uh, applying to the Gentiles. If the Gentile sin displays the righteousness of God, well then how would God be able to judge them? It's as if the Jews were applying different rules to themselves than they were to the rest of the world. But remember, he says, God shows no partiality. Your logic makes the idea of judging the Gentiles because of their sin against God impossible, based on what the person is saying here. There needs to be the same standard across the board. Now, Paul will continue this line of reasoning to get to, get to the real critics in Paul's life. Look at the last objection. 
why am I condemned as a sinner? Why am I condemned as a sinner? Now, Paul is being misunderstood in his teaching on, of the gospel. We do not know if anyone in Rome misunderstood Paul, but we do know that some are misunderstanding. Probably not just more than misunderstanding, but they are at least characterizing Paul's teaching as heretical. Look at verses 7 and 8. It's very similar. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, do not, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul's logic is the same as the previous objection. If I lie, and therefore the truth of God is seen more clearly, why should I be condemned as a sinner? Let me say it again. If I lie, and therefore the truth of God is seen more clearly, why should I be condemned as a sinner? Why not just do evil so that people may see God's goodness? Well, people are, are slanderously charging Paul with preaching that very message. The one who are slandering Paul are probably those who are self-righteous, similar to those of the Pharisees, attacking Jesus, eating with tax collectors and sinners. The abundant grace in the gospel says that anyone who comes to Christ will be forgiven. It does not matter what sin you have done. It doesn't matter how much sin that you have. This is why we often sing here, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. We have done evil in the eyes of God. Now, we may think that our sin is beyond the ability of forgiveness. Many Jews thought that. Many Jews thought that about the Gentiles, that their sin was beyond forgiveness. But remember, Jesus did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. He did not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. The gospel is the gospel for sinners. And when sinners comes to God, God gets the glory. The more we sin, the more God's glory is, is magnified in his forgiveness. Now, does that mean we should sin that God's glory would be multiplied in giving forgiveness over more sin? By no means. Of course not. This is a slanderous attack on the gospel that Paul preached. Now, throughout Paul's ministry, he teaches that we must live up to the calling we have received in Christ. We are not saved by good works, but rather by the mercies of God. We are sinners and we need a Savior. And when we come to Christ, we should live and look like Jesus. Paul teaches often, we'll get to Romans chapter 8, he teaches progressive sanctification. When you're saved in Christ, you are positionally declared as holy. That's called positional sanctification. But as we grow in our walk with the Lord Jesus and time with him, we become progressively sanctified. That is progressive sanctification, meaning that we will become more and more like Jesus. We'll put off the old and we'll put on the new. Well, we once, once we used to speak with profanity, now we'll speak with words of encouragement. If we used to steal, now we'll work and we'll give to others. We're changing our lives by the power of the gospel. And if we come to Christ, we should look like Jesus. We should be righteous and holy in all our conduct, like Jesus. It would be very hard to take Paul's teaching and twist it so radically to think that Paul was encouraging others to sin. This is not people merely misunderstanding Paul's message. 
but people twisting it to mean something different. This may be what Peter was thinking about when he wrote at the end of his, his letter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So be diligent to look like Jesus, to add on to your knowledge virtue, to look and live like Christ. And he says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote, to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, these matters of holiness, these matters of patience and salvation. He says there are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The ignorant and the unstable were twisting Paul's words to discredit him and to discredit his gospel. Either they were trying to discredit Paul or to encourage more of a workspace righteousness or encourage others that, that they could live in freedom any way they wanted to and still be saved. Both are heresies that lead people to hell. If you trust in your works for salvation, you are denying the gospel. If you believe that you say you believe in Jesus and live any way you want, you are denying the gospel. Beloved, let us never tire of teaching and living the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ was under attack in Paul's day. It's under attack in our day. You know, John Kelvin uh, was a defender of the gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ during the time of the Protestant Reformation. When he wrote on this passage in his commentary, he wrote this, we can conceive of nothing more monstrous than that charge, which read of here had been laid against Paul for the purpose of treating his preaching with contempt among the ignorant. Let us therefore bear the slanderous abuse by the ungodly of the truth which we preach. And let us not cease on this account to guard constantly the simple confession of it, since it has sufficient power to crush and disperse their falsehoods. You know, in our day, beloved, there's going to be lots of things that we're going to be claimed as, as speaking slanderous for. As the world in our, in our culture continues to drift farther and farther from God's truth and starts to, to say light is darkness, or, uh, darkness is light rather, and that which is evil is, is, is good. As they continue to, to drift that way, the church will often drift that same way. And they'll look at us and churches who believe and live the Bible is that we are teaching things that are slanderous according to God's word. How dare you say that people can't live any which way they want? How dare you can say that people can't love who they want to love? How dare you, church? Well, I would just say to us, beloved, we have to stand on the truth of God's word. When people try to twist and um, pervert the teachings of Scripture, we must stand on the pure doctrine of Christ. We have to guard the simple confession of the gospel, which Jesus saves and says that Jesus is our king, that we want to live for him and his glory. We no longer live for ourselves as using our freedom to cover up for evil, but using our freedom for the, for the glory of Christ and his glory. You know, every generation has their own struggles. I think maybe in generations in the past, they, we, we struggled maybe with a workspace righteousness. 
We thought if I, if I came to church and I took my kids to church and, and, I, and I tithe, therefore I'm, I'm good with the Lord. You know, I think there's been maybe a, a swing of the pendulum maybe in this generation says that I don't have to do any of that. That doesn't save me. Now I'm free to live any which way I want and, and, and God's still going to give me grace and mercy. We don't want to fall on either side of, those, of that spectrum. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. And we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have to guard the freedom we have in Christ while we guard the abuses of those same freedoms. This is why we need the church, beloved. This is why we need people in our lives to say, hey, I think you're going too far with your freedoms. Hey, I think you're trusting too much in yourself and you're sounding too self-righteous. We need to remember and declare to ourselves and to two that we know the, the, the words of the song that we're about to sing. Psalm 103. My God is slow to anger when I go astray. Bless the Lord, O my soul. For all my betrayals, he will not repay. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Through mercy and compassion, his great love is proved. He covers my transgression like the snow. As far as from the east, from the west, all my sins removed. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He saved me from the pit when I had lost all hope. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, I think what happened to Israel here and Paul's concerned is the people of Paul's day were stopped stop saying that. They started saying, well, what does it matter that we are the people of God? Rather than saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. Brothers and sisters, we need to join throughout the saints, throughout the ages, and constantly declare, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Let, not us, let, us, let us not forget all his benefits. His word is always true. It will never fail. His word is true in judgment, and, O oh, beloved, it is true to save. His steadfast love will never end. His mercies will never cease. So you and I can say now and forever, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for tough passages that we have to wrestle with, uh, judgment and righteousness. We pray, God, that all of us would take something from this passage today, knowing that you are true to your word. You are true to judge us when we sin that you've been faithful to, to judge us through Christ, judgment on our behalf. Then all of us who are now in Jesus are forgiven. So God, we can now declare with strong and loud voices, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. We pray, God, that the, as the rest of this service continues, that you would allow us to say that with a true and sincere hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the, the worship team uh, comes up, uh, I do want to encourage you.